It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of April 6th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. We do not, however, leave out the spam. You know, if people didn't lose money to phishing attempts, they'd really be kind of funny. PayPal continues to be one of the top targets of the spammer scammers. The crooks are getting more sophisticated. I haven't yet seen a phishing attempt, though, that isn't obvious within about the first five seconds. So here's another example. I had a few minutes to spare, so I took a look into the email slop bucket. There were three messages that purported to be from PayPal, so I knew immediately they were scams. How did I know that? Well, easy. First of all, I don't use the office address for my dealings with PayPal. PayPal doesn't even have that address on file for me. And even if they did, the company wouldn't use that address because it wouldn't have been listed as my primary address. And even if they did, they wouldn't send three messages from two different addresses with the same subject line. The subject in each case was PayPal Account Review Department. Two claimed to come from update at paypal.com, and one claimed to come from support at paypal.com. But okay, let's say that I received the message at home, and there was just one of them, and the scammers managed somehow to guess the special email account that I use for PayPal, and only for PayPal. Let's pretend the message actually came to that address. The message would still have been placed in a wrapper by Spam Assassin, which runs on the server. Spam Assassin doesn't seem to think too much of this message. The wrapper says spam detection software has identified this incoming email as possible spam. The original message has been attached so that you can view it if it isn't spam or block similar future email. Then provides a preview of the message, which begins, Dear PayPal Customer. Now, you know already that in legitimate messages, PayPal would always use your name exactly as they have it on file. The wrapper from Spam Assassin also says the message scored 19.2 points, and I consider anything above 5.0 to be spam. So how to get those points? It appeared in four block lists that gave it a total of, let's see, two, four, seven points. It was received via a relay that's listed by Spam House, another three points. That relay is also listed by Spam Cop, there's another two points. It contains a URL that's in a blacklist, another couple of points, and so on down through the line. So the total is 19.2 points. I have never seen any message score above about six and not be spam. So clearly this was spam. But let's say Spam Assassin was taking a nap, missed the message, and that maybe I got the message real early in the morning and I wasn't yet awake, so I opened it. Well, at this point, I should certainly notice that PayPal didn't address me by name. Dear PayPal customer, we recently reviewed your account and we suspect an unauthorized transaction on your account. Protecting your account is our primary concern, and so on and so on and so on. They want me to confirm the account information by clicking on the Resolution Center and complete the steps to remove limitations. If I hover the mouse over the Resolution Center link, I can see that it really wants to take me to paypal.user dash confirmation dot com forward slash acc forward slash login dot php 
Now, what's that telling me? Well, they've tried to put PayPal at the front, so that's what you'll see. But that isn't really where it's going. PayPal, in this case, simply indicates a subdomain of the domain user-confirmation.com. Well, I've never heard of user-confirmation.com. You already know, probably, that I didn't click the link, but I did do several other things. I handed the link over to Sam Spade, told Sam to pretend to be Internet Explorer 5 running on Windows 98, asked him to fetch the web page. That would be the page that I would have gotten had I clicked the link. I also used centralops.net to find out just who userconfirmation.com is and where it is. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, which, by the way, is www.techbiter.com, you can see the full HTML for the fraudulent page. I apologize for the size of the file. It's a large graphic because it's a very long file, so it's about two and a half megabytes just to download the graphic. The page starts by turning off Google indexing for its meta tags. I suspect this is done to avoid having the page show up in Google searches, which would reveal the page for exactly what it is, fraud. The next step involves loading a variety of style sheets to control formatting. Well, that's a pretty good attempt to make the page look legitimate. There are even specialized style sheets for Internet Explorer 6 and Internet Explorer 7. Interestingly, there are references to PayPalObjects.com. That's a domain that is owned by PayPal. The crooks are simply ripping off PayPal's graphics to make the page look legitimate. The page also makes use of PayPal's scripts that are provided to legitimate users via a link. In fact, the page is nothing more than a login form. All it asks for is your email address and your passwords. No questions about credit card numbers. No questions about anything else that might give this away at this point as fraud. It looks legitimate. Or it would have looked legitimate if I'd actually loaded it in my browser. This is the setup for what happens next. So all it wants is my email address and my PayPal password. What can they get from that? Well, I can't go beyond that step, because doing that would subject me to fraud. So I really don't know what would happen, but I can surmise. Users who enter an invalid user ID or password will be told that the credentials are incorrect. But if you enter your real username and your real password, you will suddenly appear to be logged in, and PayPal will start asking questions so that you can validate your identity. PayPal will, in fact, probably feed some information back to you. How does it know that? Well, it's a fairly simple bit of trickery, one that's relatively new to phishing, though. It's called Man in the Middle. Victims give the fraudulent site their user ID and password. The fraudsters then use that information to quickly log on to the real PayPal site, look up your information, and pass back some of that information as proof that it's real. At this point, the fraudsters have all the information they need to gain access to your PayPal account, and as an added bonus, they have all of the other information that they can wring out of you by playing the validation game. These guys are clever. They will even thank the victim and state that full access to the account has been restored. The final step will probably be to redirect the victim's browser right back to PayPal. They'll never know. Remember user-confirmation.com? Well, I found out that it is registered through Zenet. Zenet.com is in China. Additional digging revealed a name and an address in Beijing. That might or might not be correct.
It could be just as fraudulent as the email and the website. While not being able to read Chinese, I found the Zenhet.com website not particularly helpful in finding out more about the domain itself. The dialogue that I thought might be for who is information was actually the service that checks to see if a domain name is available. So I asked centralops.net to tell me where the website is hosted, and this turned out to be a surprise. The site isn't, or wasn't, hosted in China. It was on a server owned by AT&T, the former SBC division. The server is actually in St. Louis, information that was clearly revealed by a trace route. It would be easy to be outraged that the site is on a server owned by AT&T, but, I mean, let's face it, the telephone company provides website hosting as all other site hosts do. Nobody at AT&T knows about fraudulent sites until somebody reports them. Now, I had intended to report the site on completion of the report. That would give AT&T everything they needed to shut the site down, but somebody beat me to it. When I tried one final trace route just to confirm the location, the trace route aborted. When I then tried to view the userconfirmation.com web route, the result was 66.1, host locked. <laughs> Chalk up one for the good guys. It's easy to think that an organization that's ignorant about one aspect of digital image processing is equally ignorant about other aspects. A friend received a series of absurd requests from a publishing company. His requests clearly illustrated that the publishing company had a serious lack of understanding of digital images. They wanted him to provide an image that was 600 pixels wide at 72 dpi, and they also wanted him to provide an image at 300 dpi that would be suitable for printing. Now, in the first case, 600 pixels is 600 pixels. DPI doesn't matter. That's a function of printing. In the second case, they specified 300 DPI, but didn't bother to state how wide the printed output would be. Without that, it would be impossible to provide what they wanted. They also warned that any tampering with the original image wasn't permitted, and they would know if my friend did it. Because they were so clueless about the first two points, it was easy to assume that they wouldn't be able to spot image manipulation either. Betting on that would be unwise, though. This is a time when television would be helpful. You'll have to take a trip over to the TechBiter Worldwide website to see this, if you're interested in this part of it. What I show is an image that has been manipulated, but only a bit. And I show the histogram. You'll note that there are a few minor jaggies, little sharp points in the histogram. If no changes have been made in an image, the histogram typically will be smooth. I then made some additional changes to the image, and you can see the change, a big change, in the histogram. You begin to see spaces between the lines. Well, then I started with an image that had no manipulation at all, and the histogram revealed that. A nice smooth histogram with a few peaks and valleys. I then made some minor changes, and we begin to see bars. I made more pronounced changes, and we had larger white bars, empty spaces, colors that are not used. And if I make some major changes, the histogram equally shows major changes. Never assume. In nerdly news, you don't find the words Google and layoffs in the same sentence very often. In fact, never so far. But they are there today. Also, Dell is cutting more jobs, so is Motorola. The term tip of the iceberg seems to be coming more relevant as we are finding out that the economy can't take repeated abuse of tax cuts, war costs, cheating mortgage financiers, and offshoring jobs indefinitely 
without stumbling. Google is cutting about 300 jobs from its DoubleClick subsidiary. Google recently acquired the advertising technology company and its 1,200 employees. So this is a 25% staff reduction at DoubleClick. Google will also spin off a DoubleClick business unit, Performix Search Marketing. Performix is a division that works with companies to place ads on search engines. The man in charge of integrating DoubleClick with Google, Tom Phillips, wrote on the company's blog recently that Google should not be in the search engine marketing business because it's important to maintain the trust of users. Good point. Google's and Performix search marketing's objectives are actually at odds with each other. Google wants to maximize profits, take in as much money as it can. As for Performix... Their objective is to get the best performance for their clients for the least money. For some DoubleClick employees, Wednesday was their last day. Others will work in transitional roles, and those roles will end when the consolidation has ended. Dell is planning to cut $3 billion in costs over the next few years. It announced this week that it's going to lay off more than just the 8,800 employees previously announced. Michael Dell says he's not satisfied with the current state of affairs. Dell will close an Austin plant. That will cut 900 jobs. And the overall reductions represent about 10% of the company's workforce. Dell has already cut 5,500 jobs. 1,000 more heads are on the block this quarter. Dell has increased headcount, though, in sales and support. That's welcome news for the owners of Dell Computers. The company has received poor marks for outsourcing support to offshore workers whose grasp of English might be best described as limited. And Motorola says it has plans to take a $104 million charge as part of a reorganization that will cost 2,600 workers their jobs. The charge includes $113 million in severance costs, but those are reduced by $9 million in reversing accruals from previous periods. If you're an accountant, you probably have some clue what I just said. Investor Carl Icahn has been pressuring Motorola to split itself into two separately publicly traded companies, spinning off its unprofitable mobile phone unit to investors. Talked about that last week. The company announced recently it would do just that. Now here's some news. The Guardian in England quotes EMI music executive Glenn Merrill as saying that music downloads are not necessarily bad. (laughs) Somebody in the music industry has finally figured this out. Merrill came to EMI from Google, where he was the chief information officer. At EMI, he's working to develop the company's digital strategy, innovation, business development, supply chain, and global technology activities. He'll be a busy guy. Better late than never on this point of view, though. You know, Napster wanted to negotiate a payment scheme with the recording industry a decade ago, but the industry slammed the door, refused to negotiate, refused to even talk about it, and eventually put Napster out of business. Well, the music industry won the battle, but they are clearly losing the war. Now, companies such as EMI seem to be willing to see if they can work with file-sharing systems instead of opposing them. Merrill says that some academic research shows file-sharing is a good thing for artists and not necessarily bad. Even more important, Merrill suggests that research might be better than pig-headed stubbornness. He said, and I quote, We should do a bunch of experiments to find out what the business model is. All right, Merrill didn't really say anything about being pig-headed, and he didn't mention stubborn. All that was mine. There is evidence, Merrill said, that people we think are not buying music are buying music. They're just not buying it in formats we can measure. 
Additionally, Merrill criticized the Recording Industry Association of America, the good old RIAA, for going after individual file sharers in court. It's a poor business model to sue your customers, he said. I don't think that's a sustainable strategy. EMI plans to experiment with ad-supported music download services and subscription music services. So, common sense may yet prevail. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBinder Worldwide for the week of April 6th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.